You're listening to Robert Wright's Non-Zero Podcast. Hi, Josh. Hey, Bob. How you doing? I'm doing very well. And you? I guess I won't complain. Um, the world is not in a great uh, situation right now. That's what we're going to talk about. Let me introduce this. I'm Robert Wright, publisher of the Non-Zero Newsletter. This is the Non-Zero Podcast. You're Joshua Landis, a uh, professor at the University of Oklahoma, uh, director of, among other things, the Center of Middle East Studies. You are, uh, and you uh, explain where exactly you are at the university. You're not. I'm in the college, the College of International Studies, the Bourne College of International Studies, which um, brings together different disciplines. I'm a historian by trade, but I teach modern politics and history of the Middle East. Okay, and you've written a lot about the contemporary Middle East, and that's what I want to talk about. Uh, It is, of course, uh, in turmoil. Um, And one thing I wanted to. uh, look at is kind of ways the Israel-Hamas war could unfold, uh, including the possibility that some fear of regional conflagration. Um, And looking at that part of it calls for looking at the motivations uh, of a number of actors. Uh, And I think you're you're as well-versed as just about anyone in this particular constellation of actors. Uh, So we're talking about you know, Iran, Syria, Hezbollah, uh, well, Israel, Israel, of course, um, uh, but also various militias in uh, Iraq that can cause trouble for American forces there. It's a pretty it's a pretty complicated uh, equation. Um, and I thought I would start by uh, asking you what your kind of theory of the case is as far as why this thing happened in the first place. So. For starters, what do you think Hamas was trying to accomplish? And uh, if you think that Iran played a role either in planning and conceiving it or just in green lighting it or 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 any significant role. And I want to, of course, hear whether you do. Um, what would Iran's motivation have been and and what would the motivation of, of any other actors that you think could have could have played a role be? Well, Hamas, you know, I think Hamas is was calculated, was worried that. The Palestinians are being passed over. And uh, with the Abraham Accords, with this effort on the part of the United States to get Saudi Arabia and Israel to um, sign a peace agreement. Now, so I I think many Palestinians felt that, that, you know, the the Arab world, the international community is turning the page on the Palestinians, have given them up as um, a lost cause. Mm -hmm. And this effort, certainly, uh, at least for the next few years, has put the Palestinians front and center. Uh, it sucked the United States into this conflict. It's woken up American diplomats who realize now that they, they, they've been hoping that the Israel-Palestine situation would just go away. Um, and it's not going to go away. It's not going to go away for the Arab countries. It, this, is, this is a boiling issue now. Now, whether mm-hmm. that remains a boiling issue into the future, we'll have to see how this all plays out. But I think that's the, the driving force between Hamas, which is a deeply anti-Israel um, uh, organization, as we saw. And uh, and so there, there's an ideological component as well as just a geostrategic component to this. Mm-hmm. Now, Iran. 
<clears throat> what does Iran hope to gain out of this? I think that Iran is is a major backer of, of, of Hamas. It has been helping them get arms through tunnels and so forth. Uh, so Iran is, is is in this. I don't think that they're pulling all the strings. Um, if Iran had wanted to get involved in this, they should have gotten involved from October 7th, when Israel was really reeling on its heels and uh, and confused. If if this was going to turn into a, a regional conflagration, I think they would have gotten their proxies to jump in and try to turn this into something that was going to bring down Israel. I don't think they've calculated that they could do that. Um, they've the Palestinians. This is a Palestinian affair, and yes, Iran is trying to raise the temperature. And we've seen these missiles, uh, particularly from Yemen, um, cruise missiles whether it's headed towards American fleet or presently towards Israel. But Yemen is the most unlikely place. These missiles can't hit Israel. Uh, airplanes have been taking them down. They're fairly slow moving things. So, but Iran is signaling. It's signaling where it stands in the Middle East, that it's pro-Palestinian. And this is a way for Iran to break out of its isolation, mm -hmm. to stop the Abraham Accords, which I think were very frightening for Iran, mm -hmm. in the sense that Israel and Saudi Arabia and the Gulf Arabs, led by America, were going to close ranks in an anti-Iran coalition. And this breaks that up. It also allows Iran, which has become quite isolated as a Shiite Islamist um, state in opposition to the Sunni world, as we saw during the Syrian battle and the Iraqi battle. Uh, Iran um, and Hezbollah, its proxies, have lost a lot of their credibility in the Sunni world and been, been seen as enemies. This allows them to finagle their way back into the front ranks, seen as defenders of mm -hmm. the Palestinians, a hot button issue, and look more credible than Saudi Arabia and uh, other Sunni powers who've, who've abandoned the Palestinians. So it puts them front and center again. And I think that's where they want to be. They also, I think, see this. It'll be a success for Iran if Hamas gains legitimacy in the West Bank. Mm -hmm. And that's even if Israel goes in and destroys Hamas, the, it kills much of its leadership in Gaza. I don't think that it can destroy Hamas. This is what Israel says they're going to do. Um, and they can certainly kill a lot of the leadership. But the the hatred for Israel, which fires an operation like Hamas, is going to spread. And there really isn't any there isn't any solution for the Israel Arab and Israel Palestinian conflict that's on the table. Both Democrats and Republicans in the United States have abandoned the issue. They don't want to get involved in the peace talks, which haven't been going on for, you know, well over a decade now, because, because they don't see any way out and they can't mm -hmm. pressure Israel to leave the West Bank. There are 700,000 settlers now in East Jerusalem, West Bank, and they're not going to leave. Um, oh, well over 60% of the West Bank is owned by Israel. So, and we've seen this progression of more right-wing Israeli governments who are dead set on annexing, um, you know, if not all, much of the West Bank. 
And so th this, this, the, out, the two-state solution seems to be dead. And that means that the West Bank is going to become Gaza eventually because the Palestinians have nowhere to go. They can't get self-determination. They can't be free from this military rule. And they're not going to be integrated into Israel as equal partners. So it, 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 it's a very dark um, situation. And Hamas is exploiting this. These extremists are exploiting that because they believe there is no dead. There, there is only a dead end. And I think much of the Arab world and Islamic world feels that too. And they feel that there's a, a terrible double standard being promoted here by the United States. And Iran is going to try to exploit that double standard. It takes, you know, it takes the focus off of all the failures of Iran, which are many. Mm -hmm. They're uprising. Uh, most recently, it, it refocuses the attention on America and Israel and Palestinians, not on Iran. Mm -hmm. Do you um, do you think Hamas anticipated the magnitude of the Israeli reaction? Um, you know, I've heard various theories about you know what their kind of micro motivation was. Um, I mean, I think you know, as you said, the, the larger backdrop is. These Abraham Accords, which Biden had decided to sustain and, and advance by bringing Saudi Arabia into the normalization with Israel fold, um, you know, those those are threatening. To, that, that drive was threatening to Palestinians because traditionally, you know, we had thought Arab recognition of Israel would be a prize for solving the Palestinian problem. And then, of course, there were specific things. Uh, for uh, both Iran and Hamas not to like about where things were moving. I mean, the, the Saudi Arabia deal would have would have directed a lot of resources toward the Palestinian Authority, Hamas's rival. Um, and of course, apparently we would have been giving uh, uh, security guarantees to Saudi Arabia, which Iran can't be happy about. So there's all that uh, as motivation to do something. But some some people... Um, have kind of thought that, ask whether, well, first of all, were atrocities of this magnitude really optimal for Hamas? Like, couldn't you, uh, you know, revive the fires they wanted to revive in a certain sense in terms of anti-Israel sentiment, you know, more effectively uh, if you, if you, if Hamas seemed a little less uh, villainous, there's that question. And then there's also the question of, uh, didn't, wasn't that bound to provoke uh, a bigger uh, Israeli reaction than Hamas is likely to enjoy? I mean, you know, this is this is pretty. Uh, I don't think I don't think it's good for Israel what they're doing personally. Uh, I, I don't think it's in their interest, but it's also not in the near term good for the people in Hamas who are who are getting uh, killed. Uh, to say nothing of the civilians who are also. Getting killed. So, so people have asked the question, like, what were they thinking? And I, uh, some of the theories I've heard are, like, well, they didn't realize that they would wind up killing this many civilians. They thought they would encounter more Israeli military resistance. There's that. Uh, and perhaps relatedly, I've heard that they really thought that if you take a, a bunch of hostages, Israel will just stop and deal with you, or maybe inflict uh, a more token level. Of retaliation and then stop and deal with you, which, you know, Israel's past uh, behavior with hostages might suggest in the past they've been willing to give up vast 
like literally like a thousand Palestinian prisoners for one Israeli soldier. So these are the theories I've heard. Uh, what do you think? And do you think it's even a good a good question? I, I mean, you know, uh, does it are you at all puzzled by what exactly Hamas would, was thinking would happen next? Yes. No, I think you're I think you're absolutely right. These are important questions. You know, we don't I don't know what's in the heads of Hamas leadership, but they couldn't have been be hard for them to expect first their own success. Uh, but secondly, this kind of response from Israel. We saw <clears throat> let's just take a few examples in the past, and that is, first of all, in the 2006 war in Lebanon with Hezbollah, Hassan Nasrallah, the leader of Hezbollah, attacked and took three Israelis hostage, uh, soldiers across the line, and thought he could trade them for Lebanese, for Lebanese prisoners that were in Israel. Israel smashed him and said, we're not going to do this. And it, it turned into a big war um, that surprised both Israel in, in the strength of Hezbollah, but also really took the Lebanese back because Israel did some major damage, uh, not only to the to Hezbollah and the Shiite centers, but to other wider um, uh, amenities in Lebanon. So Hassan Nasrallah said after that, if I had known what Israel was going to do, I wouldn't have done uh, I wouldn't have gone across that border and mm. and killed the Israelis and taken these hostages. So, you know, people miscalculate all the time with these wartime situations. And and there was Nasrallah, who I think is probably much more acute than some of the Hamas uh, leaders, uh, miscalculating. And Israel miscalculated as well in that because they didn't realize how how lethal Hezbollah was going to be. And 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 the same happened again here in Gaza. The miscalculations are many. I think Hamas, if we look at what Hamas would have been expecting, the last four incursions and battles with Israel, which come every four years roughly, um, led to negotiations and didn't lead to the destruction of of Hamas. Mm -hmm. Even if we go back to Cast Lead, where about thirteen or fourteen Israelis were killed, and and and, and 1,400 uh, Palestinians were killed. It was almost 100 to 1. Hamas must have been expecting something like that, I would imagine, is that Israel was going to pound them, maybe 100 to 1, but, um, but they, would be, they, would, they would have those 200, those, those Israeli hostages to negotiate. Right. And this would be their, their real uh, trump card. Israel is not, um, you know, Israel is, is telling itself and telling the families of those hostages that if we don't have the military pressure, we're not going to get to negotiating and that the best way to save them is to go in with full force and to preoccupy them uh, in the hopes of getting these, these hostages out in one piece. Now, whether those two things are compatible, getting the hostages out and destroying Hamas, is anybody's guess. We just really don't know um, whether Hamas will kill those people first before they die or whether they will fight the Israelis and die without killing them. Um, mm -hmm. You know, it's anybody's guess. I mean, that's when you get into pure speculation. And um, 
but th there are many dangers ahead. And yeah. I think everybody has miscalculated on this, and particularly Hamas. Yeah, the, um, uh, you know, if you're right, and Hamas was expecting, you know, a, a massive retaliation, at least, you know, a high ratio of dead Gazans to dead Israelis, uh, that must mean they they hadn't anticipated killing that many Israelis because if it you know even uh, uh, I mean I, they might consider something like five to one sustainable. That's about where we are now. Uh, a little higher you know, than let, that. Even. Let me interrupt you for a second, um, Bob, because I want to tell you an anecdote. I just two nights ago I gave a lecture to the National Defense College of Oman, of all places. Mm -hmm. And it was a room full of people, you know, probably 80 uh, officers. And after my lecture, they were asking me, of course, questions on Palestine, which is that which is the issue today. And a number of Omani officers said. Isn't Israel Israel's army, we've discovered that Israel's army is weak and America's weak. And that was their takeaway. Now, that's only two of these officers. You mean they discovered that before this or this no, has illustrated this, it? This, you know, I'm sure that they were convinced that America's on the decline. And that's, uh -huh. a, that's a big narrative in the Middle East. But this event had convinced them, I think, at some level, the success of Hamas had convinced them that mm. Israel is not, Israel is vulnerable. And it can be fought. And that's, you know, that's the that's the takeaway that Israel is going to try to reverse. Right? right. I mean, Israeli citizens, I think, felt that themselves and, and the panic, the deep distress that has gone through Israeli society is, you know, maybe. Israel's not going to work. Right. I mean, it, yeah. maybe we are like the Crusaders. You know, the Arabs are constantly saying, you know, making this comparison between the Crusades, who were in the Middle East for 200 years, but eventually a Salah Hadin came around and drove them out. Mm -hmm. And and that's what Nasser, you know, wanted to be the Salah Hadin of the Middle East and other, you know, Saddam Hussein, so forth. So Arabs, Arab society writ large had been giving up that idea with the Abraham Accords. And this, of course, rekindles it. And and that's that's what I think the Netanyahu government and this and and the the leadership in Israel are going to try to roll back that idea, and just say, mm -hmm. look, we're not weak. We may yeah. have been caught. We may have been caught sleeping, uh, and that's a mistake. But we are going to smash you so hard, uh, you're never going to wake up. That's so, that's what they want to do. And so, no, so in other words, the, we'll the current. See. The current uh, these what what Israel is doing in that in that scenario is as much for demonstration purposes for regional actors as it is to actually eliminate Hamas, which Israel may or may not think is possible. Yes, and I think it's to reassure Israelis too that they're that they're not weak. Mm -hmm. Um, and yet in the end, it, it it only if anything. Well, we'll see. But it I think you're right. It is it's a it's a vicious cycle. Right. And it doesn't solve the underlying of, problem. Yeah, it is going to make the underlying problem worse because. Yeah. You know, young Palestinians. Have been recruited to Hamas, particularly those that have dead relatives and, and most Gazans have dead yeah. relatives yep. and there's been a lot of killing in Gaza and and so they're recruitable 
because they have this desire for vengeance. They, they see the Israelis only as military people with helmets and tanks and planes that are bombing them. They don't have any right. contact with Israelis who are, other than through this military, it, it's sort of like a Star Wars, you know, they see Israelis as monsters. And that, unfortunately, that perception is going to be uh, even more widespread after this. Yeah, I was, go ahead. Yeah, it's like the dragon's teeth, you know, Jason and the Argonauts. It's, it's the dragon's teeth out there. Ten more are going to are going to pop up um, in its place. And that, that's what we discovered in Afghanistan, that no matter how much you bombed, you couldn't eliminate the Taliban. And um, yeah, this is the yeah, dilemma. I, I was reading a piece by Chuck Lane in The Washington Post. I, 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 I know him a little from my journalistic past. Uh, and he had gone to a viewing of the uh, uh, the GoPro videos from various uh, Hamas, uh, you know, militants during the during the atrocities. And, uh, you know, he was, I think, rightly kind of aghast at how not only cold blooded they were, but in some cases celebratory about uh, the carnage they were inflicting. And it is shocking. And but then I saw not that long afterwards a picture of what's going on in Gaza, and there were these two kids about you know I don't know eight or nine or ten, and they and they looked like they were kind of fleeing uh, horror. And I just thought, well, you know, in, in in four or five years, what do you think they're going to be like? I mean, what do you think they're at? Do do you not expect them uh, to take delight in the death of Israelis? I mean, I'm sorry, but that's just the way human nature is, yeah. and and uh, it's it's grim. Um, so, uh, we talked about, um, Hezbollah is, uh, commonly mentioned as one of the ways this thing could spread. And I have to say so far with the Israeli ground incursion having begun in earnest, I don't know, maybe a, nearly a week ago, um, so far things seem, uh, at least as stable as I think in a way I could have hoped for. I mean, there's bad stuff happening in various places, uh, but, you know, Hezbollah seems not to want to jump in and so on. Can you, uh, let's start by talking a little about Hezbollah, their perspective, uh, a little more than you have. And you might even start by explaining to people, how did Hezbollah get started? Like, what, what, is, what is Hezbollah? What is, its, what is its founding identity? Well, Hezbollah, um, got started in 19, really, it, it, it begins with the Israeli invasion of Lebanon in 1982, where the Palestinian, the, the Shiite Lebanese, who are a third of the population in Lebanon, live in the south, mostly, and the Bekaa Valley. Israel rolled over this territory, which at the time was run by Fatah, the military arm of the PLO, and it was called Fatah land. And the Palestinians, since really Black September in 1970 in Jordan, when the Palestinians tried to overthrow the king of Jordan and the king smashed them, drove out all of the PLO fighters, which had been primarily based in Jordan. They fled to Lebanon. Lebanon had a very weak government and had allowed Palestinians to arm themselves in the camps. Civil war broke out in 75 in Lebanon, and the Palestinians were recruited 
by the Sunni Muslims to be their army, really, and, and to help counterbalance the Lebanese army, which had a leadership made up of Christians. And this changed the balance of power in Lebanon, helped facilitate the, or spark the civil war. And then the, the PLO and their Fatah fighters dominated the south of Lebanon and used it as a base to attack Israel, which is what eventually led to the invasion of Lebanon by Prime Minister Begin and Ariel Sharon. So then they occupied, then Israel ended up being the occupiers of these Shiites, Shiites who had originally greeted the Israelis um, with flowers and candy, you know, and as a sort of typical, they had, many Shiites had been happy to see the PLO driven out, thinking that it was going to lead to their liberation. But of course it didn't. It led to Israeli occupation. Why did Israel stay if they had successfully, had they not managed to entirely drive uh, the PLO out of, out of Lebanon? They did, they did but the, it, 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 it was a house of cards because the exit strategy, and this is important for, for, for Hamas and, and Gaza, the exit strategy for Israel when it went into Lebanon was to set up a Maronite government. Lebanon had crumbled in that, civil. These war. are Christians, Marianites. Maronite Christians who are Catholic. Right. They're they're Romanate Catholics, so that they right. give allegiance to the Pope in Rome. Are very pro-French or were at the time, and had been left with a lion's share of power by the French when the French left Lebanon. Remember, the French were the sort of colonial rulers of Lebanon between the two war, but from the end of World War One to 1946. When the when the French left, they left the Maronite Christians with the lion's share of power in Lebanon. The president of Lebanon has to be a Maronite Christian, the head of the army, a Maronite Christian, and six out of 11 members of parliament had to be Christian, which gave the Christians really a lock on leadership. That balance of power, that, that demographic balance in Lebanon had switched dramatically with Muslims gaining a majority in large measure because of the Palestinian refugees of 1948. Mm, mm. Several hundred thousand, well, well over 100,000 were driven into Lebanon, a country of a million people at the time. So that made Sunni Muslims the majority. And the Palestinians, the Christian, the Christian Lebanese, tried to keep the Palestinians from integrating and getting nationality and keeping them in refugee camps for fear that they would upset the apple cart, the demographic apple cart mm. in Lebanon. But because it was corrupt, because there was intermarriage, many Palestinians got nationality, began to intermarry, and changed the apple cart. And then, so Lebanon and the, the, the troubles in Lebanon are intimately linked to the Israel-Palestinian war. Mm -hmm. and, and it came back to bite Israel. So Hezbollah, in 1982, began to form in opposition to Israel. But at the same time, there had been the Iranian revolution in 79, and Iran sent, IRGC sent these, these revolutionary guards to southern Lebanon to help train and motivate and arm the Shiites into this beginning of this paramilitary force. And Iran's motivation was just to have a point of, you know, military leverage right there uh, you know yes. uh, just kind yes. of the more power in the region the better i mean iran of course had suffered a devastating uh war 
uh, after Iraq invaded and had basically no friends in the region except for Syria. Syria is the only country, I think, that supported Iran during the war. So, uh, I mean, I think there's a, there's a there's two tendencies I'd like to just briefly dwell on in analyzing this. One is to think it's a religious thing. And uh, as I understand it, the PLO, which kind of was a pioneer of anti-Israel terrorism, was more or less secular and, and uh, you know, multi-denominational, you know, also in, include Christians. It wasn't it wasn't this Islamist movement. OK, and they and they did their enough terrorism that Iran uh, wanted to go after them. Uh, I mean, Israel wanted to go after them uh, in, 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 in Lebanon. There's that misconception. The other is that uh, Iran has always been motivated fundamentally by some kind of uh, goal of uh, destroying I Israel or, or whatever. And I think people I think people in general, when assessing the motivations of enemies, tend to underestimate the extent to which the motivation is defensive. I'm not uh, you know, I'm not saying anything is purely defensive with anyone, uh, but um, but I think right. Iran right. feels I mean, very insecure right. in, the, in the region. Right. Or especially back then. Yes, I mean Iran's motivations are one was to, to to one was to spread its revolution. I mean it 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 had a typical revolutionary goal, which was that it was correct and it should spread the revolution in the same way that the United States and its democratic revolution has been trying to spread democracy around the globe because it sees it as the best solution for humankind. And Iran wanted to spread Islamic government. And its formula, and so there is that ideological element to it, which is deeply anti-Israel, sees Israel as a colonial outpost in the middle of the Middle East. This is a way for Iran to burnish, you know, its own reputation as taking up the challenge of the Palestinians. But even more, I think, over time, more importantly for Iran, was the deterrent factor. Having a Hezbollah, a non-state actor on the border of Israel that could hurt Israel and that proved that it could hurt Israel was going to keep Israel from blowing, from attacking Iran and blowing up its nuclear refineries. And we've got to remember that Israel did just that in Iraq, where it blew up Saddam Hussein's um, uh, Osiric um, nuclear facility, and it blew up Syria's nuclear facility. So Israel's way of keeping the Middle Eastern states on their heels and from being able to challenge Israel was to go and do these bombing raids. And Iran didn't want to be bombed and it didn't want to face challenges that Israel, you know, has been assassinating their nuclear scientists and so forth and has been talking about trying to bomb their nuclear facilities. So by having Hezbollah next door, um, and arming it with the missiles, Iran could say, you hurt me and I'm going to hurt you. And it gave Iran, which didn't have an air force and which didn't have um, the ability to, at that time to send missiles to Israel, somebody that could, that could do, you know, stick a shiv in the side of Israel if there was going to be that back and forth. And, and that's, so that deterrent factor is very important for Iran's and and what do you think Iran's motivation was for wanting a nuclear program uh, in the first place? Well, I think like everybody, uh, you know, the nuclear program was started under Nixon and uh, and America well, well under the Shah, who got permission from Washington as this sort of gendarme in the Middle East with the Nixon doctrine. Uh, 
we moved away from the Eisenhower doctrine, which is that we're going to help every country fight communism. And Vietnam put that Eisenhower doctrine, uh, you know, showed that it was too much. Mm-hmm. And Nixon started what was called the Nixon doctrine, which was to to arm up local um, allies like Iran to police their area with American arms and American support. And so we w- were willing to give Iran this nuclear facilities. So once the revolution took place, of course, that those nuclear plants came under the revolution. And then, of course, there's the other there's the other factor, which I'm sure you're 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 driving at, which is the fear of regime change. And if you look at the North Korea model, nobody talks about regime change in North Korea because right. to attack North Korea is dangerous because they have the nuclear weapons. Whereas they Libya, whereas Libya did give up their nuclear program and we implemented regime change. And we wrote a route of them. Yes, absolutely. Uh, you want you want to have the nuclear <laughs> weapons so you don't get rotor rooted. And um, and in the region where both Afghanistan and Iraq were successfully rotor rooted, at least for a time, I think that this is the first time I've heard that term in this context. But I uh, so maybe I'm just out of the loop and it's a, the common. <laughs> <laughs> Try to add a little color to your show. Here. You're, you're, it's working. It's working. Keep going. Uh, <laughs> All right. So, so uh, okay. So, so Hezbollah, uh, that was a very useful uh, historical tangent because I think most people, including me, just don't know enough about the history of this whole thing. Uh, now, so back to Hezbollah, my, my sense is uh, that if you ask, why they seem to be doing a very kind of carefully calibrated tit for tat. In other words, yeah, we're 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 striking Israel a little in support of Hamas, but we want to make it clear to Israel that we don't want things to get out of control. I gather that that has its roots, uh, well, partly in how much devastation was wreaked in, I think it was, you said 2006. Six. Six. Um, also, and, we, we have to remember fact- the Syrian civil war, you know, Syria, Iraq, Lebanon, are all in terrible, terrible shape. I mean, Lebanon has been, since 2019, their banking collapse and, and bankruptcy, the country has fallen into deep poverty. And not only that, but Hezbollah is really in charge today in Lebanon. So it has to bear the weight of all the Lebanese who are looking at it and already castigating it for this bankruptcy, um, I think a little bit unfairly, but the, the point is, is that if Hezbollah gets Lebanon badly beaten up by Israel again, it's not going to it's going to damage it terribly. Mm-hmm. And Hezbollah has become a Lebanese party. And I think this whole stuff about defending the Palestinians is really secondary for Hezbollah. They got the Israelis out of Lebanon in 2000. And that was through, you know, Hezbollah introduced suicide bombing to the Arab world uh, in a war against Israel. That was then taken up by the Palestinians in 89, but it was Israel that started with the suicide bombs. I mean, excuse me, uh, Allah that started with the suicide bombing and so and fought Israel, successfully pushed Israel out without a treaty from Lebanon by 2000 Mm -hmm. in a way that Israel had thought they could set up a Christian government but Syria and other local Lebanese assassinated the president, um, Jamail, who was Pierre, I mean, uh, excuse me, 
Bashir Jamail, who was supposed to be president of Lebanon, a Maronite Christian, he was killed. Mm -hmm. And Israel's exit strategy collapsed in Lebanon, and it got it got sucked in, and it mm -hmm. stayed till 2000. And Hezbollah just attacked it one after the other with these little car bombs, with individuals going up to roadblocks and blowing themselves up with a with a suicide vest, and and killing two or three Israelis at a whack. And Israel got didn't know what to do. It was like us in Afghanistan, and Israel by 2000 just withdrew unilaterally mm -hmm. the same way we did in afghanistan and that's that's the lesson for gaza i guess and that's the lesson that i think american generals were saying don't occupy because if you try to set up a non-hamas government or bring you know <clears throat> dennis ross and a bunch of others have already written their op-eds saying the exit strategy should be get rid of Hamas, and then bring in the PLO from the West Bank, which, mm -hmm. of course, is dysfunctional. And Abu Abbas's, you know, hated 87-year-old leader is hated in the West Bank for corruption mm -hmm. in, in and not standing up for the Palestinians. So uh, to put it mildly, I'd say, I mean, a lot of yes, people just yes, consider him a, a know, flat out as a collaborator of, of the Israel-American oppression. A lot of people just see him as the enforcer hired by Israel and America. But, and, uh, and so, you know, Dennis Ross in his op-ed said Israel cannot be seen to bringing PLO in on the back of Israeli tanks, so America should do it. America and the UN should take charge of Gaza for Israel and then construct a better government. Like right? as if America is viewed as legitimate in Gaza? I mean, see, well, this is, I mean, Dennis Ross, we should say, he was at the center of attempts to solve the Israel-Palestine problem for years and years and years. He was the guy, Bill Clinton calls, everybody calls to handle this, and he thinks America would be, has enough legitimacy among Palestinians to play that role? You know, it's desperate. It shows you, uh, it shows you what trouble Israel's in because there aren't, there isn't an exit strategy that can work here for Israel. And, uh, unless Israel just goes in, kills the Palestinian leadership, and then withdraws, mm -hmm. right? It leaves this smoking ruin behind, uh, in which case the UN, Qatar, and others who've been willing to do it in the past are going to have to step in. And the UN will be sucked into it, obviously, to provide aid. The trouble is they won't be able to stop Hamas from reconstituting itself. That's, that's the problem. Um, you you think you think not like literally Hamas because because my thinking is just kind of more generically look something some extremist movement will will have a lot of traction after you have left so many Gazans with dead friends and relatives and maimed friends and relatives and themselves having been traumatized and fled and uh, uh, you know Palestinian leader Hamas well you're saying actual Hamas per se is bound to survive even if even if israel really turns this into like a weeks or even months long endeavor you know that the 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 hamas recruits uh, i recommend a video which is um oh boy i'm forgetting the name it, death in gaza or something like that it was mm -hmm. made in 1922 23 by john jonathan miller 
who, hmm. who, who was shot at the end of making it um, in a terrible accident. 1922? Tw- no. Oh, 2020. 2020. 2020. 20, 20, 20, 20, 20, 20, 20, okay. I was, 20, I was thinking. Excuse yeah. me. 2012. Excuse 2012. Me. Okay. I was thinking you are an historian, aren't you? Yeah. No, um, I was getting. Yeah. Okay. 20, let me just see. No, it's 20, 2002, three. It was put out in 2003. Excuse me. 2003. 2003. Just Jonathan Miller. Okay. It was shortly before Israel withdrew its settlements. And um, so it's after the second intifada, which is very uh, bloody. Right. It was at the it was right during the second intifada, which was very bloody. And Israel was building this wall in Rafah and had had bulldozed a whole bunch of Palestinian homes along this border strip with Egypt in order to build a much more substantial wall that would stop Palestinians from smuggling arms through the trenches. Mm-hmm. At least that's mm-hmm. what it was supposed to do. It didn't okay. ultimately okay. succeed, okay. but it caused tremendous turmoil. And that film, documentary film, is important because what it shows, there's one tremendous scene. And the film is about young kids. All of the all of the people who are interviewed are 10 to 12, 13 years old. And so you're getting these sort of innocent kids and you see a level of anti-Israel hatred um, that all these kids feel because all of them have brothers and sisters who've, who've died or uncles and so forth. And then you see these young kids being recruited by Hamas. Mm-hmm. And the Hamas fighters are only 18 or 19 themselves, but they're recruiting these 10-year-olds who are doing watch out, look out, carrying things, sort of. And, and those kids are the leaders of Hamas today. 20 years later, they're they're mm. probably 35 years old and they're the fighters who went out and, and and fought. But there's a whole level of those young kids that are gonna be left without leaders, mm. people who they probably have been recruited by and respected. And they're gonna feel that they have to get, they have to get vengeance for them. And they're even going to want to carry on the Hamas brand in a sense. You know, they might change it. And yeah. call it something else. I have okay. no clue what they're going to do. But, you know, let Israel went into Lebanon to kill PLO. What did they get? They got his, a much more lethal organization that introduced suicide bombing and was much better organized and less corrupt than the PLO. The United States, you know, went into Iraq, <laughs> theoretically, to kill Al-Qaeda that didn't exist there. And what did we get? We got ISIS. Mm-hmm. Um, there is there is a lesson in there someplace that you can't yeah. use brute force to to um, yeah I mean I mean you understand at the same time why Israel thinks they need to demonstrate uh, deterrence uh, I mean that makes more sense when you think about these regional actors they're trying to impress and not just uh, Hamas's leadership, because Hamas's leadership isn't even in Gaza, the people making the ultimate decisions. Uh, but the deterrence. So so in other words, it's not like I, I mean, that's one question that some people have asked is like, why don't you just do what you did after Munich? You know, assassinate the actual political leadership, you know, just take your time, bide your time and and convey uh, the fact well, that if you should have done that after 9-11 and we didn't because. Yeah. The nation required, or at least the leadership felt that they required to do something. Mm-hmm. And 
the country wanted vengeance. They wanted to see action. And so we took action. And then we got ourselves into Iraq, which was just the craziest thing. But people do that when they, they, yeah. they're responding blindly to a situation where they're furious and where the country yeah. is demanding something. And I think Israel is in that situation because this was a ghastly, it was a ghastly operation that just shocked Israelis. And Netanyahu is fighting for his life. And so I think are many of the, the leaders, intelligence and military leaders, who feel that they were caught flat-footed and they don't, they don't um, you know, they're trying to make up for it. So yeah. that's when mistakes are made. And, and, and what do you do with Palestine? The, the, but I think the, the point of this whole conversation is that the occupation has gone on Israel and the United States have foreclosed the two-state solution. And, and the two-state solution was the hope. Because if you can provide self-determination in a nation, even though it's a lot less than Palestinians had hoped for, you do have something to fight for. And many Israelis said, well, we gave them Gaza, and Gaza could have been Singapore. But anybody who goes back and looks at what Gaza was and, and the, the, the sort of four-year mowing the lawn, realized that you had a, Gaza's a wasteland. It's got very little prospects. Of, it's not going to become. And, and the Gazans are, are poor. Many of them are very badly educated, and they're angry. And it's not, it's not a convivial to any kind of, of real, it's just not going to become... Yeah. Singapore. And that, that idea is thrown out, I think, by Israeli leaders and other commentators who are really ignorant about what the reality is on the ground and the history, but it's there to sort of fog the situation. The situation is a bad one, and it's going to lead to greater desperation because there is not an outlet for these 6.23, almost 7 million Palestinians who are trapped in Gaza and the West Bank and don't have uh, equality, don't have justice, don't have a future. Uh, yeah, and they, uh, they they don't get to vote. Um, and But they are ultimately ruled, uh, I mean, in, in the West Bank, quite directly and literally ruled by Israel in, in, in Gaza, you, you know, you might say more indirectly via blockade and so on. But um, so if you'll let me pause briefly to make an announcement, Josh. So, uh, Normally, at this part in the show, I bring down the paywall and say, if you want to hear the rest, um, please become a paid subscriber to the Non-Zero Newsletter. Uh, with, with this set of conversations I'm having now, for the time being, about this particular subject, I'm trying to keep it all public. So uh, what I ask people to do, um, and, 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 uh, and the rest of this will be public, what I ask people to do if they think these are valuable uh, conversations... Uh, is first of all, you can become a paid subscriber to Non-Zero Newsletter, become a member, and then you'll have access uh, to all the all the bonus content, including, uh, you know, the the kind of overtime segment of most podcasts. Uh, also, various print material, or you might just have the uh, satisfaction of knowing you're uh, supporting conversations that do not happen on cable TV. Um, uh, the um, and and of course. Uh, if you can rate and review the non-zero podcast, that's valuable. If you can smash the like button on YouTube and so on. Okay. Uh, th thank you for, for that patient, your patience, Josh, and for uh, sticking around a little longer. So back to, um, 
Hezbollah. So it sounds like Hezbollah really doesn't want to get involved in this. Uh, are there are there things uh, that worry you in terms of what could uh, lead things to get out of control on that particular front between Hezbollah and Israel in the north? I mean, for example, if this goes on long enough, and the uh, and and the uh, and the level of devastation and death for Gazan civilians is just uh, grows. Uh, without end, does that force their hand or would it have to be some kind of miscalculation or what? What do you worry about on that front? Well, I think it's a long-term trajectory. Today, Syria is a broken country, extraordinarily weak. The national budget is $3 billion. You know, it's less than many American universities spend in a year. Um, that's for close to 20 million people in Syria. Iraq is also in shambles. Um, tremendous corruption. And Lebanon is bankrupt. So Israel doesn't face a real danger in the short term. It's the long term. Because up until now, the United States has this alliance with, it has an alliance with the Gulf states, UAE, Saudi Arabia, Bahrain, you name it. Mm-hmm. That has been very powerful, has lots of money. That's that alliance is not going away because the Saudis and Gulfies want America. But America's going to take a very bad hit here, I think. Because the Arabs are angry. And they're feeling their own capabilities on the world stage. And they do feel that America is in decline, China's on the rise, other competitors are on the run, Russia. And we've seen the Gulf take a very, a very um, backseat on the Ukraine struggle. They, they've done everything they can to avoid taking sides and to continue building strong relations with China for missile technology, for um, all kinds of computer technology, chip plants that they want to build. America's refused to step in and do these things uh, and give this kind of technology to Gulf countries because it has a treaty with Israel that that requires uh, a quantitative qualitative military edge is mm-hmm. what it's called. Uh, and so it, it finds it very difficult politically to give these things to the Gulf countries, and it doesn't want to. China's willing to do it. So America, through the Abraham Accords, thought that it could keep the Gulf countries out of China's embrace mm-hmm. by giving them all this weaponry and opening them up to Israeli technology. Um, and I think that was very um, attractive to the Gulf countries who, who see this alliance. Now, whether this Gaza debacle is going to really throw a roadblock in that rapprochement over the long run, I don't know. It is very possible that this will just be a sort of a two-year road, you know, bump in the road. Mm-hmm. But the Palestinians aren't going away. And we have, you know, the pro-Iran countries, Lebanon, Syria, Iraq, all of which are now led by Shiites or Shiite heterodox groups like the Alawites in Syria, are aligned with Iran. Now, they're in a terrible economic situation. We've got sanctions on Syria. We're putting more and more sanctions on Iraq. And the countries have been bombed. To- on Iraq or Iran? O- on Iraq, too. We- we've started yeah. putting more and more sanctions on Iraq because Iraq is 
serving as a the banking window for mm. Iran. Mm-hmm. More and more Iraqi banks have been getting dollars and providing them to Iran mm-hmm. and letting Iran do its business through Iraqi firms because they're pro-Iranian groups all over Iraq. And America has been sanctioning those groups, boom, 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 in an effort to, to mm-hmm. try to put that back in the bottle. Okay. But it's going to have a very hard time doing it. And this adventure, this Gaza, standing with the Israelis, has, has given a lot more credibility to these Shiite groups that are pro-Iranian. So that's where the long-term picture comes in. Because So you, think, mean, you mean uh, our standing with the Israelis has given yes. them more credibility? Uh, yes. It's given Iran more credibility. And it's given, and even countries like Saudi Arabia, which uh-huh. we've seen normalize relations with Syria against America's right. wishes. And brought Syria back into the Arab League, where it had been expelled at the beginning of the the, the, the uprising in Syria. And Saudi Arabia has been diffident about really helping Bashar al-Assad get back on his feet because of the Iran connection. Um, and they don't trust him. Mm-hmm. But the pressures are going to be greater. You know, this situation has made all Arabs realize we are weak. As Arab people, we are weak. We are weak because we the Arabs can't... are saying that about themselves. You're saying yes, we uh-huh. can't stand up for the Palestinians. We we're angry at the double uh-huh. standard of the West that treats Arab lives like nothing, uh-huh. and treats Israeli lives like they're each one is you know gold, but Palestinians you can just you know kill ten to one at any time you want to, and and Arabs are furious at that. I and think so and so Iran, I mean, even though Hezbollah and Hamas are Arabs and they might be seen as standing up for the Palestinians, you're saying ultimately they recognize that the power is coming from Iran, which supports these groups. And they're kind of embarrassed that Iran, which is not an Arab country, it's a Persian country, is is defending the the Arabs, the Palestinians. Is that the idea? Absolutely. And they're 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 they're. They understand that at the root of their weakness is the divisions within the Arab world, that the Arab world has been at each other's throats, whether it's civil war in Lebanon, civil war in Iraq, civil war in Syria, Yemen, civil war. The Arab world is riven with the civil war and disagreements, Mm -hmm. and that has caused the implosion of the Arab world. And the result of that is that Israel is stronger, has taken over the West Bank, Iraq has Iranian influence, mm-hmm. has lost the Kurdish North, that Syria has 30% of Syria is occupied by the United States, another 15, 10% is occupied by Turkey, mm-hmm. and that Turkey and Iran have been expanding their power in the Middle East at the expense of Arabs because the Arabs are weak and divided. And this, you know, bringing Syria back into the Arab League, trying to patch up these differences, which has been the Saudi main thrust of Saudi foreign policy over the last several years, patching up its relations with Qatar, going over and talking to Iran, trying to mediate with Turkey, and just tamping down all the conflict that has started since the Arab Spring and the invasion of Iraq, and uh, and trying to 
develop some kind of stability in the Middle East. That, I think, is going to cause Saudi Arabia and the Gulf countries to overlook some of their animosity towards Assad and these pro-Iranian groups that have left the Middle East so divided. So Mm -hmm. that effort, I think that effort is going to challenge both Israel and the United States in the Middle East over the long run. So there's and a real so- irony here. I mean, as you said, uh, part of the motivation for uh, the normalization drive, you know, America's drive to normalize relations between Arab states and Israel, called the Abraham Accords under Trump, then sustained uh, by Biden with this uh, big Saudi Arabia initiative attempt to, to, to bring Saudi Arabia into that fold. As you said, part of the motivation was to kind of say, we're still running the Middle East. China isn't because remember, you know, one thing that had happened not that long ago was China had kind of presided over maybe orchestrate is too strong a word, but they presided over this incipient rapprochement between Iran and Saudi Arabia. And those were the Chinese Abraham Accords, if you will. I mean, those are the Chinese attempt to counter this American effort. And by the way, arguably, if you're interested in actual regional stability, the big divide that that addressed, you know, between the Iran uh, part of the Middle East, the Iran-Syria axis and the, and the Sunni axis is arguably the smarter <laughs> divide to try to overcome. You tell me that. I don't know. But it seems to me I was kind of hopeful. I thought, well, yeah, well, that is the source of a lot of trouble. The, the tension between Sunni Arab states and Iran, Syria and pro- the proxies. So, yeah, if China wants to step in and start healing that divide, it's OK with me. Now, now you, you could see the Biden-Saudi initiative as designed to push back against exactly that and say, no, 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 that fissure is going to stay. And we're going to there's a there's a fissure we're more worried about, which is between Israel and the Arab states. And and the 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 irony is that if, if you agree that this whole normalization drive by Trump and Biden helped precipitate the Hamas attack, which it may have, um, the consequence of that by your analysis, as I see it, is that now the Sunni Arab states are less inclined, are going to be less inclined to want to be seen in public with America, so to speak, right? I mean, is, is that all correct? Yes, I think so. And and, it, and it's going to play into China's hands. I mean, China is a big winner here, uh, I think, in the long run. And Iran is too. This is, even though Iran's ally Hamas is being, you know, pounded into dust, at least for the time being, I think Iran sees this as a win because it it discredits the United States. It makes the United States look, you know, all of its rule-based order seems to be badly damaged by this. Um, And and can you can you elaborate on that? I mean, what what rule do, are they saying we're not enforcing in this case? If, if that humanitarian law, you know, is right, that right. you know every time somebody puts a microphone in front of the State Department spokesperson and says, it says, is Israel, is this a war crime to bomb a refugee camp? Um, and and a, and the spokesperson has to say something like, we don't have a position on that. Mm-hmm. or ask the israelis or mm-hmm. those are the they're they're running cover for israel to do what we would normally be horrified at uh you know destroying bakeries or hospitals or whatever when you know when assad did that everybody screamed bloody murder and um 
And he would say, oh, well, well they were they were hiding in the hospital. And, and or, or, it, Putin. Or, Putin. or Putin or Putin more, more in recently. Ukraine. And yeah. and. And it's just, you know, <laughs> it, right. it, it underlines the hypocrisy element. And of course, all countries are hypocritical and we can, you know, point at China for its hypocrisy and 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 right down the line. But the focus is today on the United States, which is expected to and and, and claims that it it runs at a different standard than these. OK authoritarian regimes and and now it looks less and less like that so they're all going to point that out and that's going to help china it also it also sucks america back into the middle east we've moved our aircraft carriers over there we've threatened all these arab countries and we are stuck in ukraine which looks like it's going to be a, a, a hurting stalemate and mm-hmm. we're going to have to just shovel money in there constantly, which we cannot afford. And we're going to do the same thing now, giving us 14 billion, which is just the tip of the iceberg to Israel. And we're going to have to, we're going to be stuck there for the next year or two, right? Trying to figure out how do we replace Hamas? What are we going to do? Do we send aid? And and all of the all of the diplomacy it's going to require. It's going to suck the oxygen out of the air. And the United States has got lead feet in both these areas. Mm-hmm. Europe, so forth. All of this is impeding our pivot to Asia, which we keep on saying we're going to do. Uh, we just said, oh, the Middle East is stable. We can move to Asia. Now, where are we? We're back mm-hmm. stuck even worse in the Middle East. And by America. this analysis, the longer the Israeli incursion in Gaza goes on, the worse for America. Absolutely. Uh, it hurts us reputationally and it hurts us, you know, geostrategically. And uh, and we're going to be throwing money. And already the Republicans are going to make hay out of this. They are making hay out of this. They're saying, why are we spending all that money? Look at our schools. Look at our roads. Look at our infrastructure. Look at the divisions in America, the income gap. And it's true. I mean, they're not just making that up. So, uh, you know, I'm kind of, uh, I guess, heartened that you seem not that worried about this war spinning. Well, out of control seems like a weird term to use when there's so much carnage going on, but, you know, become a wider war uh, and uh, draw the U.S. and Iran into into the war. You seem to think that there's a very low probability of that. Is that right? I do. I do. I think that I think that that Iran, Hezbollah and the other allies see this as hurting America. They see this as a win, as it is. Of course, mm-hmm. the Palestinians and Gazans are going to be sacrificed in this. But this is all a win for for them because it entangles america in a lose-lose situation in israel with the and, and it puts america back in charge of the palestinian problem right which america had been you know doing everything to shake it off and to say you know we're not going to do peace negotiations anymore we're not going to get involved in trying to settle the arab palestinian the, the palestinian israeli conflict um, it's not on our radar screen, and now it's back on the radar screen. And both Republicans and Democrats are going to have to come up with proposals on what to do. And it's going to it's going to take a lot of diplomatic because the whole issue is so mm-hmm. you know Israel and America are connected at the hip, and this isn't just a foreign policy problem. This is a domestic problem, 
And both Republicans and Democrats are fighting over who can be more pro-Israel on this issue. And they're not going to get out of that problem because it is a domestic problem. Well, and that's the but that's also the reason it's so hard for us to play a constructive role in actually solving the Israel-Palestine problem, because uh, we 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 do not view things uh, from an objective perspective and ask, like, what is a deal that really would make sense for the Palestinians and, and would would likely lead them to support? I mean, you know, we tend to view things from Israel's uh, point of view. and. Uh, but enough of that right. editorializing. Right. As David Aaron Miller said, America ends up playing, you know, being the lawyer for Israel. But it's more than that. Even when we do have a good plan, like the Oslo Accords, which we backed, um, we can't enforce them. We cannot push Israel just that extra inch to get them to do the painful things like withdraw settlements from the West Bank. So is your view that this is a question I, I the Oslo Accords, I'm not that well versed in. This is comes from the 90s. It was a source of great hope. Uh, is your view that both sides just failed to comply? I mean, how did it get derailed? Was Israel more the non-compliant actor or well, Palestinians or there, what? There were big mistakes on both sides. You know, Israel said that the Palestinians didn't really give up uh, violence. And, um, and the Palestinians said, you know, Israel never intended to give us the West Bank. They, they kept on building settlements at this incredible pace. And if you look at the graph of, of settlements in the West Bank, it's pretty steady, whether it's labor or it's Likud, whether it's left or right in charge of, uh, of governance in Israel, the settlers were going out there and Israel couldn't discipline it, couldn't bring them back. And America didn't challenge them to stop this. And when President Obama did say you can't you shouldn't build any more settlements, Netanyahu could run circles around Obama. He got many more ovations in Congress when he went there. One hundred and twenty congressmen and senators that year flew to the West Bank and right. stood up and said, Israel's not the enemy. Iran's the enemy. So. Right. Netanyahu could do an end run around our presidents in order to stop America from putting real pressure on Israel to give up land and to give up territory, which it didn't want to do. And it didn't mm -hmm. have to do it. So Israel's so much stronger than the Palestinians. The balance of power is so skewed that it, 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 it was difficult. And America couldn't put its foot on that. Mm -hmm balance those scales and um and get israel to, to to stop building settlements so in the end we've got seven hundred thousand settlers in in east jerusalem and the west bank territory that the palestinians say should be theirs uh the international community says should be theirs international law says should be theirs and, and that's it, it's today it's impossible really to uphold international law in the region and it leaves us in this very murky, it's unclear how, how to move forward because the Oslo Accords are dead. Mm -hmm. um, America continues to cling to the notion of a two-state solution, that there's gonna, there's, the Palestinians could have a state in the West Bank. But uh, nobody really believes that that's operable anymore. Because a few a few cling to it. I, I, I had a conversation with Danny Seidemann, an Israeli, uh, and, you know, he he knows the, the territory, but geez, I mean, there are now, if you look at the plans, I mean, in the standard two-state plan, 
you leave uh, a lot of the thickly settled settlements right near Israel proper intact. Yeah. And in exchange, you give the Palestinians some land somewhere else. But then you still have to evacuate the settlements that are further from Israel. And as Danny himself said, that number has something like doubled over the last 15 years. So now you're talking about close to a quarter million settlers. Well, if you, if you remember when they had to extract a much smaller number of that uh, from Gaza, much smaller number of settlers. 10,000 in Gaza. Only and, that 10, was, and that was pretty traumatic. It was and, traumatic. And, and so, I, I mean, look, I'd love to believe it. And maybe this is a big enough earthquake to get people serious about it. But as you suggested, I, I just don't think American domestic politics permit us to play an actually constructive role. I mean, that's my editorial comment. But back, but back to the. Um, uh, well, go ahead. Were you going to say something? Or, or uh, no? It, it, you know, as a percentage of Israelis, even if it's only two hundred and fifty thousand that you mm -hmm. will, are willing to move, um, there are seven million Jews in Israel. Two hundred fifty thousand. I can't do the numbers. You, you know, automatically, but that's four times seven. Uh, it, it's a big percentage. It would be like trying to give away New Mexico to, 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 or something like that. You, Americans would never vote well, for and, it. And, and, and bring everyone in New Mexico back, even though some of them were fiercely resisting, like at least civil di disobedience style, if not worse, uh, right. and didn't want to be, you know, weren't going to go. It's peacefully. not going to happen. It's not yeah. going to happen. And, and, um, and that's the, that's the, you know, that's, that's the problem. And, and neither, can you do a one-state solution, which is yeah. to bring those Palestinians and make them Israelis, give them legal rights, and allow them to vote? Because that would be the end of the Jewish state. Um, you know. Although, it, I mean, you know, if you, you know, I think, I think it would take a lot of time. Put it that way, it, because right. the difference, the cultural difference, the economic difference yeah. between Palestinians in the West Bank and Gaza, who are, you know, at three. $3,000 a year per capita GDP, yeah. as opposed to Israelis who are who are like Europeans, who yeah. are $40,000 per family per year. The, the cultural, the educational, all these differences are so stark today yeah. and made stark by this military occupation that that to put them together is going to be, be hard. very difficult. At the same time, I don't want to dwell. I have a couple of more questions for you, so I don't want to get sidetracked. I think if you actually play out the scenario where, okay, Palestinians now get to vote, given the way power actually works in the real world, the fact that you had something like 50% of the electorate being Palestinian, I, I don't know what the exact numbers would be, would not lead to Israel's Jews being like immediately threatened or something, right? I mean, you know, well, especially if you're excluding Gaza, which is which was well, the that's what I was yeah. going to say. That that was the goal of the evacuation or a goal, I think, of the yes. evacuation of the Gazan settlements was for Israel to say, OK, we're not running Gaza. So if worse comes to worse and we do wind up with some kind of one state or Palestinians start demanding the right to vote, we still have a clear majority of Jews. Now, I, and I was going to say that would be an especially kind of interesting and I think honestly benign experiment in in one state solution because you'd still have a clear majority uh, of jewish voters if it were just the west bank that were part of it now in a way i suppose what's happening has made that less likely in a way that you could leave the gazans out of the equation i i don't know this is all conjectural but 
as much as Israelis say, don't even dream, don't even think about a one-state solution, honestly, it doesn't seem less plausible to me than a, a two-state solution is a way to get out of this mess. But Well, it seems the way things are going. And the, the question then is remains, how long can Israel keep Palestinians under military occupation with limited mobility, with the inability to build an economy that's that's capable mm. and have the freedoms that will allow for for Palestinians not to become like Hamas and not to become uh, mm. extremists and adopt an ideology which is destructive over the long run. Um, that's the that's the that's the problem is that what we've been seeing in Israel is radicalization. The West Bank was fairly docile until 80, you know, 87 with the, with the Intifada. Mm -hmm. Then you get the development of Hamas in 89 and uh, a, in, 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 during the Intifada, and you begin to get more radical groups like Islamic Jihad and so forth. And that's been compounding because the occupation uh, the, there isn't hope for the two-state solution. There was real peace and quiet for a number of years after the Oslo Accords were put forward, and there was some hope that the Palestinians would get a state. But as that hope diminishes, you get more violence and more extremism, and that's what we've seen: is the Palestinians growing more extreme. And if you and look the settlers, and the settlers are now more radicalized. Now the settlers, you know, eight different Palestinian communities have been wiped out just mm -hmm. since. Uh, since October 7th. Um, you mean about, villages Villages vacated? Yes, there's small villages. About I think it's about you know, 300. It's funny, 300 I've, been, I've been tweeting about ethnic cleansing on the West Bank, and I always get this blowback, like, what are you talking about? You don't know what ethnic cleansing is. This is textbook ethnic cleansing. It is this textbook, unfortunately. And, and, you know, it's a tax on farms. Just the other day, you know, a Palestinian was picking his olives, got shot out of the tree. Uh, people are frightened to go out into their farmyards, and and um, th there's just terrible. You know, obviously, the the whole environment now is so superheated, and Israel's just appointed a very right wing person to be in charge of security in the West Bank. In uh, Veer, well, it's not Veer. This is another guy who's on on in, in charge of some committee. To I think Veer probably helped appoint him, but we're seeing things going backwards yeah. in the West Bank. And if we take that, if we compare what's happened in Gaza and the West Bank of growing extremism to Palestinians in Israel proper, uh -huh. where Palestinians have been able to improve their lives, have the vote, become doctors and nurses and integrated in every level of Israeli society, they are, they're model citizens. And they are thankful, it, well, thankful. They're, they are thankful for their opportunities. I just spoke to a friend of mine who was in a national security council under Netanyahu, a Druze, Palestinian, um, Israeli. And, you know, I said, well, what about the one state solution? He said, no, 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 we don't want the one state solution will upend the apple cart here in Israel. And, and I think, mm -hmm. you know, many Palestinians actually feel threatened by the one state yep. solution, as well as the Israelis do, because it will bring in this element that's oh 
there the, the complications are many. You, you mean mainly Palestinians who live in Israel proper and have citizenship? It underlines the divide. Mm-hmm. The positive message is that Palestinians are not violent by nature. Mm-hmm. They are not, you cannot not deal with them. There, there is a model of what Palestinians have become inside Israel once they have a vote and self-determination and hope for the future and can, you know, get their kids to be successful. And what happens when you take that away? You get two very starkly different outcomes. And so a, a lot of Israelis want to say, you know, we don't have any choice because we can't, the Arabs are crazy and, and they're going to be ISIS no matter what you do. You can't trust them and you can't give them an inch. Right. It's not true. Yeah. If there is a happy outcome for Palestinians, they will take it. And that's proven by, by I think, the Israeli-Palestinians. And so, you know, that's that's clearly an option for the future. How do you get there in a one-state solution so that you don't upset the apple cart? You know, how do you get to civil rights? And, and of course, Americans felt threatened by giving blacks equal rights after slavery and so forth. And it's been a very difficult, long problem. And of course, blacks are much less numerous in the United States than Palestinians are in Israel. So there are many, many challenges, but yeah. uh, somehow civil rights are going to have to be on the front burner. And, yeah, and I, that's, I, that's the, you know, that's, that's all the options that are there. Yeah, the aforementioned Danny Seidemann once quoted, I think, Thomas Jefferson saying about slavery. I mean, Danny did this by analogy with the situation Israel faces. Um, uh, I guess it was Jefferson who said, you know, having the institution of slavery is like holding a wolf by the ears. You're afraid to you're afraid to keep holding and you're afraid to let go. Um, the the uh, So I, I have one more. It's like a two part question brings us back to. Uh, the origin of, of this conversation. Um, so I'm gathering that uh, you're not that worried about this war going regional, which I take it to mean that another front, the two other fronts you're not worried about are kind of the Syrian front, uh, where Israel, of course, has a longstanding habit of, of, of attacking stuff every once in a while, doing airstrikes to, I guess, to interdict uh, the weapon supply to Hamas or whatever. Uh, and Syria doesn't do much in response. And even the Iran-backed targets don't do much in response. And that's been the way it is. Uh, some people think, uh, but 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 it sounds to me like you think, well, that's under Iranian control. Iranian doesn't want it to go regional. The other front is uh, Iraq, where you have these various groups, some of which are uh, are are thought to be Iranian proxies, um, and they can attack American troops and have been doing some of that. And uh, I guess a week or so ago, America staged a big, you know, unusual strike on, uh, I guess, Iran-related targets in Syria as a way to send a message like, call off your dogs in Iraq, I gather. The assumption being that all those attacks emanated from, from groups that were controlled by Iran. Uh, so far as I can tell, that... that uh, it hasn't led to escalation, but it also hasn't had the deterrent effect, so far as I can tell, because there have been uh, subsequent attacks uh, on American targets in Iraq. Okay, I'm afraid that all of that is only one part of the question. I mean, you can just, uh, you know, assure, reassure me that notwithstanding all that, you do think 
it's under control. But but yeah. then the other part of the question is maybe the West Bank is the thing to worry about in terms of this spreading. Uh, I because think, I think I think the West Bank becoming Gaza is the great fear. Uh, and, like in the short run, even like uh, in, as an extension of the current conflict. Well, it would take some time. You know, Hamas is not well ensconced. It has been rooted out by the PLO in the West Bank. But we see certain pockets of of um, of real hard bitten um, Palestinian. Uh, Palestinian militancy uh -huh. in the West Bank. And that could spread. That could spread quite rapidly. And that's the, you know, that's the, that's a likely future, particularly if they're, if the militancy of the settlers, because the balance right. of power in the West Bank has changed dramatically over the last decade. It used to be that settlers were fearful of being attacked by Palestinians, throwing stones at their cars, mm -hmm taking a pot shot at them um, as they drove across. And, and so you've got this highway system of over a thousand miles of highways through the West Bank, which is only used by Israeli license plate cars to, to be able to ferry the settlers back mm -hmm. forth between their settlements in Jerusalem and wherever else they were going. But today that balance has changed. And today the settlers are feeling much more confident and they're attacking Arab villages. Mm -hmm. And, um, and attacking olive trees and cutting down olive trees and trying to destroy the livelihood of Palestinians so that they will leave their villages, which they're doing, and go into smaller and smaller enclaves within the West Bank, which allows Israelis to expand and to right. secure themselves. And that's what's happening today at a much faster pace. And it's likely to get worse because of the right, the swing mm -hmm. to the right. Uh, now, now Biden, Biden is saying something about it, uh, but he, I, so far as I can tell, he hasn't uh, tried to exert great leverage. I, I've got to think that notwithstanding the kind of politically precarious position of Netanyahu, that it would be possible uh, to get these settlers under control, especially given the fact that, as I understand it, a lot of Israelis don't like these settlers and don't want them to further complicate the situation right now. I, I actually, my understanding is that Netanyahu, if he cracked down on them in a big and even conspicuous way and, and sent troops to settlements and said, we're taking away your guns, whatever the hell you have to do. Well, I don't think he'd want to His try to- His would fall apart. I mean, how would long? It? Yeah, I think what? so. The left is not, you know, the left is supporting him, the left. The center is supporting him today in a unified- Yeah. Because of the extreme situations in this fight on Gaza. And so are American, you know, American, I think American Jews are doing the same thing. Um, they want to support Israel in this time. And everybody has closed mm -hmm. ranks. Obviously, that can explode at some point if once the, the real the real dangers of Gaza seem to be mm -hmm. at, at an end. But but I, I don't think, you know, many people are saying Netanyahu is finished at the end of this. The trouble is disciplining settlers has been something that Israel could not do for since the beginning. And that's because of these delicate coalition governments, all of uh -huh. which require um, uh, people from the right, whether it's religious right or whether it's the nationalist right, 
who want settlements. And so settlements have expanded under every prime minister, no matter whether they say they're for the two-state solution or not. That window of opportunity has shrunk continuously because of this growing settler movement. And today it's going to be even harder to do that because Israel has, you know, the demographics of Israel have mm-hmm. moved further and further towards the towards the right. Both but one can imagine a coalition. Now, maybe, I mean, first of all, I would say if Israel's government were to fall, I would think if that could be done gracefully and it's replaced by a government that doesn't lean so far right, the U.S. would welcome that. And one might ask, why don't we help engineer it? But I, 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 in any event, a question uh, for me is, if, if you try to imagine a coalition government that would have uh, the strength to rein in the settlers, would that coalition have to bring on the Arab parties? Because traditionally, of course, there's been this unspoken rule in Israeli politics that Arabs can have their parties, but no Jewish party is going to enter a ruling coalition with them, right? And that's been the rule. And now, I don't know the political spectrum in Israel well enough to ask whether, well, suppose Netanyahu's government fell and the extremists were no longer, the far extremists were no longer part of the coalition. Uh, in order for you to have the, the the political strength to really try to rein in the settlers, would you need to bring the Arab parties on board and, and violate that longstanding norm? Do you have a sense of that? I think I think you would, uh-huh. uh, which would be extremely difficult. And it's one reason why uh, the left has really been losing authority. But, you know, these are difficult times. I mean, I think we should think big. <laughs> you know? Right. You know. Right. I, for America to get deeply involved in trying to engineer and, and throw weight in one side in Israel or not is is just as perilous as trying to get involved in Syria or uh, it, it, these micromanaging these different things is is beyond America's capability, and I think it's beyond well, the politics in the United States, which are well. Two, that's that's a big problem is the politics in the U.S. Uh, the, there's they, no agreement in America, and it right. would immediately immediately uh, whoever tried to do anything like that uh, would be accused of being anti-Semitic or you know uh, uh, of. Well, I mean, I don't know. I don't know. It's not hard to criticize Bibi these days without being called anti-Semitic, since most uh, Israeli Jews are doing it, or or a large chunk of them. But um, uh, well, well, I I don't. I don't have. I don't have my finger on the pulse of of either. You know, the Jewish American community that would have to be would have to be very united behind a president, a U.S. president, to to throw its weight in that way. And I don't. I don't. My sense is that even though American Jews have been very critical of the right wing move uh, in Israel, they don't want to be, they don't want to oppose. They've been very diffident about getting mm-hmm. involved in domestic Israeli politics and um, and prefer to be seen as supporters who, mm-hmm. who aren't going to micromanage. And, and that's that's a problem for for any American role. And, you know, I'm not I'm not a I'm not a good enough gauge of internal Israeli politics to speak on this. I'm sure some of your other guests. are. I mean, you know, what would actually help uh, would be. uh, If you had a president who said, you know, I've decided I'm not going to run for reelection, so I'm a lame duck and I'm I'm less worried than I otherwise would be uh, about what the domestic political reaction to what I'm about to do is, Uh, you know, it, it would take a great a great 
a great leader, a, a, a person of vision and wisdom and uh, uh, and and uh, small ego. And uh, I'm not optimistic about that. Well, I, I got to say, though, you're not leaving me in a very hopeful mood because uh, it, it, well, does... it is. It, it's a real challenge. It's a real challenge for the United States to try to keep the Arabs on board as it moves forward here. And President you know, President Biden is is clearly running interference for Israel right now. At some point, you know, he, he just yesterday began to talk about a humanitarian pause, but without any teeth. Um, but he's floating the idea. We saw this in Lebanon, too, in 1982, mm -hmm. where Ronald Reagan ran cover for the Israelis for, for, for a good month as Israel bombed Beirut downtown, trying to force the PLO out of Beirut. And there was a negotiated deal with the United States that did lead to that. Um, but eventually, Reagan had to turn around and tell Prime Minister Begin, you you've got to stop bombing. And something, a moment like that is going to happen in Palestine because there is significant damage happening to America's credibility in the Middle East and our reliance, our, our relations with the Saudis and, and Qataris and everybody else. And we've we've gone to them and said, you've got to discipline Hamas. You've got to you, you put sanctions on various Hamas organizations. But we can only do that for a certain amount of time mm -hmm. because our alliances are fairly strong in the in in the Gulf countries. But at some point you run out of rope. And and that's in Israel, I think, is moving as fast as they can because they understand that that window is going to come to a close mm -hmm. and Biden is going to have to make some hard choices. He doesn't want to do that. His his, you know, his project, his history has always been yeah. closing ranks with Israel, very pro-Israeli, uh, probably the most, you know, the most essentially pro-Israeli president uh, just about ever in the in the United States. But also, it's it's a strategy for winning the elections. And well, and he, he thinks, but he doesn't you know, want to break. But he does he does face this challenge of young Democratic voters being in a place that they weren't 25 years ago when he when he came up in politics. And that's becoming clear. So he he's got a challenge either way. I, I would just say that I even he, the last thing I say is and get you to react if you want is, is even if. Uh, you know, he can bring the Gaza thing to an end uh, fairly soon uh, and minimize the damage that the U.S. faces there regionally uh, and minimize the political damage he sustains from the uh, these aforementioned young Democratic voters and and just Arab American voters in some important states like Michigan, um, that that uh, you still face this West Bank problem. I mean, if this ethnic cleansing thing really gains momentum, the U.S. is, of course, going to be identified with that. And that's and. and it's gotten, I think it's an indictment of the media how little mainstream coverage that has gotten. But that will not continue forever, especially if the Gaza thing does die down and it continues in the West Bank, the ethnic cleansing. And I don't know if it would or if or if winding up Gaza would tend to dampen things in the West Bank. But that's that that could become, a, you know, a very problematic area for the U.S. geopolitically and politically, and obviously for the Palestinians who are getting killed and forced to uh, flee their villages. So anything you want to say about, about that? Oh, I do. I, I agree with you 100 percent that the West Bank, the, the future, once the Gaza situation settles a little bit, 
which uh-huh. is going to be very difficult. The spotlight's going to turn to the West Bank because there's going to be tremendous pressure for the United States not to just pivot away from the Israel-Palestine problem once again. It's going to have to point a, a, a light towards something positive for the Palestinians. If it wants, you know, it's going to have to, because the Arab countries have to save face, Saudi Arabia and so forth have to save some face and tell their constituents and tell their people that they've gained something out of being patient with the United States and moving forward with Israel, that they're going to get some concessions. So there's Mm -hmm. going to be a big ask here from Israel at the end of this. And and, and that ask is going to all be about the West Bank. Mm -hmm. And it's hard to see what can really be accomplished there. That's the problem. That's the dark problem is that is that we've got to, you know, Israel and America need to keep the West Bank from becoming a Gaza, because otherwise we're just going to be dragged back into this over and over again. There's got to be some light at the end of this tunnel, and that's got to come from the West Bank. Okay. Well, it's got to. I mean, it has to. It has to shine on the West Bank. It has to, uh, to some extent, originate in the United States, right? I mean, we can't. Uh, yes, can it uh, not happen? Is, it's going to be a. It's going to be very difficult uh, light to broker, and the United States is going to have to pay a role in it, because just you know we've been vetoing every UN effort to just have a ceasefire or do anything on the Arab-Israeli conflict, and we're going to have to stop obstructing uh, those efforts and uh and the united states needs to get ahead of it because if it leaves it in to the un it's going to be even more complicated the u.s has real leverage with jerusalem and it's got to use that leverage it hasn't used it successfully in the past yeah well josh thanks so much we always get a perspective from you that uh i don't see uh, anywhere else in the known uh media universe just about your very kind Uh, um, (laughs) the the uh and and what what's your Twitter handle? It is uh, Joshua underscore Landis with an I L A N D I S. I S yes. And uh, I am Robert Ryder W R I G H T E R on Twitter. Uh, rate and review is smash the like button. And any 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 place else you want to direct people? Uh, are you still doing the Syria comment? Uh, no, I've slowed down on that, but yeah. I have been writing. I've been writing for Foreign Affairs and and other journals. I, I'm a uh, a non-resident person at Quincy Institute, where I've published right. a number of things. So that's the that's the way. And, and I bring attention to them on Twitter. So follow me on Twitter, uh, yep. Joshua underscore Landis at L A N D I S. Okay. Thanks so much, Josh. We'll uh, talk to you again down Always the road. A pleasure, I hope. Bob. Thank you.